Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men outgrow porn. Why? So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. Today on the show, I am excited to welcome back Dr. Jake Porter, founder of Daring Ventures. Hey, Jake. Hey, Drew. Thanks for having me back. Been looking forward to it. You're welcome. Last time we talked a lot about attachment and imperfection. And now today we are going to talk about shame. Who doesn't like talking about shame? I mean, let's be real. (laughs) It's really going to draw the numbers in. (laughs) I think so, because we all experience shame. Hopefully. Yes. I meet a lot of guys who experience shame. Right. I don't think that's entirely bad. It just depends on the type of shame and and all of that. But we'll get into all that, I'm sure. Well, maybe we should talk about that, actually, because usually shame in the context of recovery and healing is spoken of as the problem. Is it really the problem? It Well, it, it certainly can be. But I like to distinguish between two types of shame. Um, so there are people out there, people who I know and love and respect who have a very different view of this, who say that there's no such thing as healthy shame. All shame is bad. All shame is wrong. All shame is something we want to shake. And I disagree with that. I think that there are actually two types of shame. There's, there's a healthy shame that serves a good purpose. And then there's an unhealthy shame or a toxic shame, or sometimes it's called a carried shame that does not serve us well. And so um, I think a big part of recovery is learning to distinguish between the two. So let's talk about this. What is shame? Okay. Shame is an emotion. All right. It's a, it's a very, it's both a complex emotion and yet not as complex as guilt would be. Okay. In terms of just development and the psychological development, neurobiological development necessary to to experience shame versus guilt. Guilt is a more Uh, developed emotion. But shame is pretty developed as well, because shame is what we feel when we become conscious of what we believe other people see when they look at us. Hmm. So it's, it's called a pro-social emotion. So it's a, so it's very much about the relational space, right? Um, And so shame is something that comes up in us when we're in a moment experiencing the the pain and or fear of being disconnected from another or others. All right. So it's, it's very much about relationship, having place in relationship, security in relationship. And so if I think that you're looking at me in a way that you want to put me out of the relationship, that's, that's probably the experience of shame. Okay. Now, I was mentioning there's healthy and unhealthy shame. Healthy shame comes up when we've sort of crossed a boundary, when we violated something um, in our humanity, and we feel it, and we begin to see the implications of that in our relationships, and then we correct, and it goes away. And I would even say that most of the time, healthy shame is experienced differently in the body. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you saw that. Oh, did you hear me do that? You know, it's more up here 
it's it's like it could be embarrassment it could be hum humiliation right but it's up here and once i course correct it begins to fade and go away versus and i'll go way down here down actually like in my gut in your I gut even, no, down your in stomach. my gut way down there right that sort of knot of worthlessness that lump of emptiness and the that says you're horrible you'll never get any better that's toxic shame or carried shame and that does not serve us at all because it doesn't go away because it's not the result of what we've done it's the result of something done to us therefore nothing we can do can make it go away so helpful though even just to check in with our bodies where am i feeling this shame yes and it sounds like when it's much lower below the diaphragm in your gut that that can become chronic chronic shame right that can become chronic shame carried shame toxic shame I, I use those all interchangeably okay so why is this so important to understand specifically for this crowd of men who are outgrowing pornography so uh it's important because your healthy shame will serve you well your chronic shame will not and you've got to figure out the difference between the two and you've got to figure out how to let the healthy shame serve you with God's intended purpose and how to uh, walk away from the chronic shame, the toxic shame that will not serve you well. This is already mind blowing because shame is something that we so often demonize. Sure. And yet at the same time, we feel it so, so deeply. And we also intuitively know that shame has a good purpose and function. And we know this because we say things like, don't be shameless, right? Don't act in a sh shameless way. He was shameless about it. What is that saying? This person's doing something about which they ought to feel shame, but they're doing it anyway. So, so our language betrays that we actually do understand that shame has a function. And shame, since we're talking about shame, shame is the first emotion mentioned in the Bible, right? It's the very first emotion that is named in the Bible. The end of Genesis chapter two, they were naked and not ashamed, right? So here's Adam, here's Eve. They're naked. They're with each other in the garden of paradise. They walk with God in the cool of the day and they feel no shame. And then interestingly, a few verses later, the beginning of chapter three, they eat the forbidden fruit and it says, and their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. And then they covered the, themselves with, with fig leaves. They covered their groins. It was not a sexual sin, and yet it had a sexual consequence. And they had the experience of shame whereby they began to cover themselves, hide themselves from each other and from God. So, so shame is a deeply spiritual experience. Shame is often very closely intertwined with sexuality, uh, even if its origins aren't sexual. And shame makes us isolate from one another and from God. So if you think about that, 
I often draw this picture. So, so imagine here's, here's the earth. All right. And here's God up here and God created the earth and he creates human beings um, to rule over the earth. All right. Under him. So they're over the earth under God. And you could draw two lines. You could draw one line between God and humans separating creator from creatures because in that way, humans are part of creation. But you could also draw a line under human beings, separating God and humanity from the rest of creation because they bear the image of God. And so humans occupy this interesting space, more than mere creatures, less than God. We're the only thing that, that occupies that space. I believe shame is what we feel when we try to cross those boundaries one way or the other. Mm. Oh, you, you won't die. Your eyes will be open and you'll become like God, knowing good and evil, like God, trying to cross that boundary and be like the creator. But we also feel shame. Romans one talks about when we act like mere creatures, mere beasts, and we follow our most base lusts and passions. And so we cross that line below. And we act like we don't bear the image of God. Either one of those things is going to make us begin to feel shame. Okay. But once we correct and we get back in our space, but once we know our role, the shame will dissipate if it's healthy shame. That makes a lot of sense. We're not angels. We're not animals. Right. We're image bearers of God. Right. And so maybe sometimes there's a fine line between humility and humiliation. Yeah. So humility is very healthy and humility is a form of shame. Hmm. Humility, it's a very healthy form of shame. It's me recognizing my place. Okay. Knowing my role, not going less than, not going better than, knowing my role, recognizing it, seeing myself in proportion to others from that more objective place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk about the humiliation side. Let's talk about the toxic shame and and how does that develop for us when we're growing up? So we're going to talk about that from a developmental neurobiological stance first. Okay. And um, so I, I, I use this example often, right? So let's say that there's a little boy, maybe he's three years old ish. Okay. Uh, and his mother has taken him to the park to play and he's running around, you know, jumping and sliding and doing all the things that three-year-old boys would do at the park. And mom is on the bench doing what a lot of moms do at the park. And she's scrolling Instagram or Facebook or what's the one, the uh, Pinterest. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever, one of those. <laughs> and, um, and every once in a while, you know, the little boy, little Johnny, yells back, mama, you know, and she looks up and she waves and smiles at him. Oh, that's so great. You know, and he runs around and he's excited, right? Like he's, he's in a state of play and, and, and excitement and discovery. And so he's in his body, he's feeling intensity and joy and exhilaration. So it's this very uh, pleasant very high level of energy, sort of affective state. So John, little Johnny's running around and all of a sudden he sees beneath the slide on the backside of the slide, a piece of gum 
And he recognizes this. He's had this before and he lights up and he says, ah, you know, this is wonderful. I am so lucky. I'm so blessed. Look at this treasure I have found. And so he begins picking on that little piece of gum with his finger and trying to get it off the bottom of the slide. And he's just about got it. And he's just about able to put it in his mouth when his mother looks up from her phone and yells, stop. No. Right. Well, what happens in his body with that experience? Well, he immediately spikes in fear, right? Because mother is yelling at him. And so he spikes into what we would call hyper aroused dysregulation. Wow. Really fast, quick spike into hyper aroused dysregulation. Now mom is running toward him and she's saying, no, no, put that down. Stop it. And, and as this is coming at him, he's feeling this disconnect, this, this rupture in the attachment between him and his mother, because she's yelling at him. She's upset. She's appearing angry. And as he internalizes this, now he goes from that hyper aroused dissociation into hypo aroused. He collapses. Oh, even his body, right? His shoulders slump. He curls in his gut, his head hangs down. He suddenly goes from all this intensity and energy to just like, like a shutdown state. And his mother gets to him and she says, oh, no, no, put that down, put that down. She knocks the gum out of his hand, but then she scoops him up in her arms and she looks at him and she says, I'm so sorry. I scared you. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's not you, baby. It's that gum. That's nasty. That was somebody else's. We don't want to put that in your mouth. You could get sick from that. It's not you. It's okay. And she's comforting. She's rubbing his back. She's holding him close. And now she is lifting him up out of that hypo aroused place of, of, of a disintegrated, like a dissociated, disintegrated self-state. That is something that his nervous system cannot do on its own. At this point, developmentally, a child cannot do that type of regulatory repair within themselves by themselves. So he needs his mother. I mean, what she did was a good thing. She doesn't want him putting that nasty gum in his mouth. It, along the way, there was the rupture in the attachment and he collapsed in this experience of shame. Oh, mother doesn't like you. She, there's something wrong with me. She's angry with me, right? But then she lifts him up out of that. Telling him, it's not you. I love you. It's this gum. The gum is nasty. You don't want to put the gum in your mouth. And when she does that over and over again, because it's going to happen again with a hot stove and it's going to happen again when he tries to walk out into a busy street. Or it might even happen when he's exposed to porn. When he's exposed to porn. You're exactly right. Stop it. Don't look at that. That's bad. Right. If the parent will follow that up, with the process of upregulating, which is essentially going to repair the rupture. That's what we talked about last time I was on the show with you, rupture repair, how important that is. If they do that over and over again, they are getting built within themselves that ability to upregulate the affect state of their body and come about of shame. It's like, it's like training them. So, so that eventually they can do it themselves. They've got the voice of mom in their head saying, it's not you, it's this thing. I still love you. 
right? Or the voice of dad saying, hey, buddy, it's not you. I love you, but this is bad for you. And that creates the psychological basis and the neurobiological basis to differentiate between shame and guilt. It's not me. It's what I did. Right? Now, what happens for little Johnny if mom yells, runs over, bats the gum out of his hand, and then while he's still in that hypoaroused, dysregulated, disintegrated state of shame, she turns around, walks away to get back to her Pinterest and leaves him in that. What if there's the rupture, the correction, which isn't wrong, right? The correction itself isn't wrong. But what's lacking is the repair and the lifting up afterwards. It's like correction with no comfort. With no comfort. That's right. It's only half of the equation. Well, what happens is this kid gets stuck in that down, down-regulated state without the ability to upregulate. You carry that out into adulthood, and that's where you get men who, when they begin to feel shame, they are literally shutting down. They are literally freezing up. They are overwhelmed. They can't speak. They can't look up. And, and I, so I distinguish between deficits and defenses, defense mechanisms. This is definitely a deficit. It's about capacity and ability, not about skill or will. To me, it's actually empowering because it's validating that this is a developmental deficit. I didn't choose to have a mother who responded to me this way. And also now I'm an adult and I'm learning about these things and I can make different choices. That's exactly right. And so these are things that are encoded. It's like muscle memory. They're encoded in our implicit memories. Okay. It gets activated automatically, non-consciously, and we don't choose to do it, but we can choose not to. Yeah. And that's, that's an important distinction. I help wives try to see this. He's not choosing to do this, but he can choose not to. That doesn't mean he'll choose it perfectly and he'll do it, get it right, right away and all of that. But he can begin to make choices that will change this pattern and start encoding something different in the implicit memory. And I want to share a story from my life recently about how this happened, because after listening to you teach about this topic, Uh it changed my view of shame. And just two days ago, I experienced what I call a shame storm. Yes. It was literally like all the alarms are going off in my system. I can feel it in my gut. Mm -hmm. What happened was my kids were kind of dressed up and my wife was taking a picture of one of them. And the lighting was okay. I wanted to be a part of this. And I thought, okay, maybe I can come in and change the lighting and the picture will look even better. So she tries to get my other kid in there and I'm getting in the way and changing the lighting. And then we just lost the moment and the kids are not able to to come back to it. And the picture was gone forever. So I'm looking at their faces and no one's talking about this, kind of feeling disappointed. And I'm thinking I've ruined everything. And that brought me back to feeling like a little boy who ruined everything. You're the problem. 
right? in my family. Yeah. So in that moment, rather than thinking this shame is my problem or just giving into it and being like, yep, I'm the worst. I remembered what you were saying just now and thought there is a rupture here. Something is incomplete. It's not evil. It's just incomplete. So I went back to my wife. I told her how much shame I was feeling. I said, can you give me some affirmation and appreciation right now? Because I was trying really hard. Can you, can you like help build me up a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. And? And she did. And when your wife met your request, what happened to your shame? It began to dissipate, just like you said. Yeah. I mean, my face lifted up. My, my, my chest bulged out a little bit more. And, and I just felt able to return to what I was doing because without this, it would have wrecked me for at least the next hour. Sure. And maybe it would have come out later in some different urges and some different fantasies and just spending more time on my phone because I don't want to feel these things. That's right. Yeah, that's it. That, I mean, that is it right there. Like you just, you just illustrated it perfectly. And there was another little voice in my head that said, you're really feeling that bad about messing up one picture. Oh, so you felt shame about feeling your shame. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's amazing how, how layered this can be, but, but what I love about your, your example there is it illustrates what I often say, which is that shame casts this big, scary, monstrous shadow. But if we pull back the curtain, it's a, it's a little mouse back there, <laughs> right? It's, yeah. it, it really is. It's a feeling that will pass. It's just an emotion. Write it for about 90 seconds without feeding it, and it's going to go away probably. You know? And if it doesn't, then there might be something else going on, right? Because, and I think this is important. Let's say someone hears this and they're like, I want to try this, you know, I want to do it. And so they they go to their, you know, they have their shame storm happen and then they go to their partner and they ask for that help, but it doesn't help and it gets worse. Right. And so they're, they're, you know, their partners are trying to say, Oh, it's okay. You were just trying, but what they're hearing is, yeah, you were just trying, but you failed and, you know, and it's actually getting worse. Well, probably they're, they're dealing with a type of carried shame that's, more than what they might be able to deal with on their own. And they might need some special help with that, right? Because if you grew up in a household where it was very direct and explicit, right? Where you were literally being verbally abused, emotionally abused and shamed, okay? In, in, in clear, direct, overt ways, it might be more difficult for you. Because you're not just coming back from that developmental deficit that the repair didn't happen, but there was actually this poison also getting inserted into your psyche along the way. So that it's not just that when I go down in that pit, I can't climb out. It's I get, I get down in that pit and then I have voices telling me that that's exactly where I need to stay. Mm. Right. So it's, it, it's made more complex by that. And it's going to take more. It, you can still be healed. Okay. I want to be really clear about that. 
healing is still possible, but it's probably going to take more, you know, to come up out of that. So in our brains, we, we tend to have either a shame-based narrative or a guilt-based narrative. Okay. And the guilt-based narrative is going to make it not about us. It's what, what we do, you know, that whole distinction. Guilt-based narrative is more closely associated, correlated, which is not necessarily causation. I'll come back to that in a second. It's more correlated with change, right? So if I'm doing something and I feel guilt about it, I'm more likely to start doing something different. Shame-based narratives are more likely to keep me stuck in that place and they're and, and shame-based narratives have been shown to be uh, more prevalent in people with sex and pornography addictions. Right. It's the contributor that makes it more likely for me to act out. And then it's the consequence of acting out. So it creates this shame cycle. That's right. And so if you look at sort of the classic sex addiction cycle, shame and despair are really the fuel. They, they really are the fuel. Um that initiates and then keeps that cycle going. When you're in the room with a couple and one of them is feeling immense shame, you can just see it. You can feel it. Right. Right. He is in the middle of a shame storm. Right. And maybe it's not just, it's not just uh, what I experienced, but it's at a, at a much more deep level. How do you work with a man who's in that place? Thank you for that question. And I, if I may, I'm going to start it as I often do with questions, not with the answer, but with the wrong answer. So let me tell you what you don't do. All right. And I'm saying this because I know you have a lot of listeners who help other men as well. Right. Um, and so I, I want to speak. <laughs> if you're in a helping role, let me tell you what doesn't help. You never overcome shame with more shame. Okay. So, so if you see a guy who is despondent, he's collapsed, he's so like, understand what's happening there is his nervous system is coming uncoupled from itself and he is shutting down. All right. And he's slumped and his eyes are down. It is not going to help to say man up. You know, it's not going to help to say, uh, you know, what's, what's the matter with you? You're not trying hard enough. That is not going to help. Okay. Believe the gospel. Yeah. Believe the gospel. Oh God. Oh yeah. No, none of that, please. But I mean, believing the gospel is a good thing. Like, well, absolutely. But, but I, I don't think that's how Christ ever dealt with someone who is uh, in that state. The, the character of God, as I read, is that he, you know, is near to the brokenhearted. And a bruised reed he will not break, okay? Um, that when people are low, we're to correct them with the spirit of gentleness. So, and I could go on and on with that. So that harsh confrontation is not helpful. Jesus was harsh and, and he confronted people harshly sometimes. I'd never read him confronting someone in that state harshly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he confronted the people who were shameless, who were condemning others. Exactly. The ones who are proud, the ones who are boasting, the ones who are puffed up. Those are the ones that he, you know, pops their bubble. Um, the others he lifts up, right? And, and so 
when I've got, and I've, so I've got my chairs here. I have my couples. There's another one. You can't see it. It's on the shop, but they're facing each other in these chairs. Right. And, and maybe we're doing an exercise where she's expressing her pain, you know, uh, of, of the, around the betrayal. She's talking about her pain and the betrayal. And he, all he is thinking is I did this. I did this. She'll never love me again. Why would she want to? I'm a monster. You know, how could I do this? Right. All of those thoughts. And, and, you know, maybe he fights it for a little bit and then just, there he goes. Right. And you feel it. I mean, I can feel it in the room. He's going to, cause I have people in rolling chairs on purpose. He's going to roll backwards, look down, maybe, maybe turn his chair to the side, his shoulders collapse. Right. That's usually what he does. Or to try to avoid that, he goes to anger and defensiveness, right? To try to not collapse. That, all that is, is the nervous system's desperate attempt to not fall down in that hole, right? So if he goes anger, that's fine. I'll interject and we're going to explore. And we're going to get underneath that and we're going to get him in touch with the shame. Or maybe he's already in touch with the shame, shoulders collapse, all of that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to approach him gently and I'm going to say, hey, what's going on? What's, what's happening? My voice is important there. My face is important there. You know, depending on what I know of this guy and how, you know, I might roll closer because I'm in a rolling chair too. I'm going to roll in closer. I'm going to, so I'm moving toward him. When the voices is, are saying nobody wants to be with him near him, he's the problem, he, right? I'm going to embody the opposite. I'm going to be gentle and kind. And I'm going to move toward him. Not so much that it's overwhelming his shame. I'm not going to get up in his space, right? So there's a there's a, a, a discernment there. I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to help him identify that it's shame. And I'm going to ask him some questions like, where do you feel that in your body? And he's probably going to say something like, in my gut. Usually that's what they say. Or they might say like a weight on their shoulders. Sometimes I'll hear that. Okay. Okay. And, and then I'll ask Something like this. If your shame had a voice, what would it say? I'm the problem. I'm no good. You're a monster. You're a sorry, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, maybe some profanity in there. And, or I might ask, if your shame took over your body, if you let your shame drive the bus, what would you do right now? Get up and leave, curl into a ball, jump out the window. I mean, those are the things I hear. Okay. All right, it's okay. That makes sense. And then I'm going to coach them in this way. What's the opposite of that? What's the what's the opposite thing to do? Well, uh, lean in. Okay. So would you do this for me? Sit up. So I get them to sit up. Lean in. So I get them to lean in toward their wife. Would you look her in the eye? He looks her in the eye. And then I'm going to give him some things to say. And, I'm, and I tell him, just, just try this out for me. Just trust me here. I don't want you to think about what you're saying until you've said it. Because I want you to feel what it's like after you've said it. So I'm going to have him look her in the eye, hold her gaze for a moment. And then I'm going to give him words to say like this. I am not going to leave you in the pain that I caused you. I'd rather be with you in your pain than not with you at all. I choose you over my shame. And 
I mean, I felt it in my body just then, just thinking about the dozens of times I've seen this happen. All of a sudden, there's a shift. He feels empowered. He feels true to who he wants to be. He is embodying his values. He is, he's going to see on her face, most likely, he's going to see her well up with tears, see that that, even if she doesn't trust it fully, that that's what she wants, that it has an effect on her. And then I tell them this, well, I ask them, how's your shame? They usually say gone. And I say, hear me clearly. The greatest healing experience for your shame is the felt experience of being enough with her. Can you say that again? Yes. The greatest healing experience for your shame is the felt experience of being enough for her. Not doing enough, being enough. When I can meet my wife's deepest relational needs, my shame cannot coexist with that experience. Yes. And I'm also thinking about some of the single guys who are out there, maybe some of the unmarried guys. How would you translate that for them? Yeah. So, so you've got hopefully a community, right? You've got your, your network, your support group, your tribe. You've got men in your lives who are dealing with shame, who you can do this with them and they can do this with you. Okay. And you can show up and be present and hear you know, hear their stories and meet them um, with, with that same kind of care. When your shame gets triggered as you're sharing, you can sit up and lean in and say, I know I need this relationship for my healing more than the isolation that my body, my shame makes me want to do right now. I'm, I'm choosing this relationship, this connection over that, Right. And that is good for both of you. That is good for both of you. And so you, I believe that we never have to, if, if both people, okay, are of this mindset, and this is with a husband or a wife or in a friendship, if whatever the relationship is, both people say, we're in this relationship for the good of one another, Right, we're in this relationship for our mutual good, our mutual growth, our mutual empowerment, our mutual for mutual empathy. If that's the context of the relationship, then I never have to choose between what's best for that relationship and what's best for me, because what's best for that relationship is what's best for me. And so I'm going to prioritize the connection of the relationship, and I am going to derive the benefit from that. Now. If both people aren't, aren't playing by those rules, then, it, then all bets are off, right? If someone is, has a track record of being selfish and, and, and harmful and abusive or whatever, then no, I'm going to have good boundaries. But if both people are trying, this is a relationship where we're going we're gonna to seek to grow together, then you don't have to choose between that relationship and yourself. And when that happens, it sounds like shame actually becomes part of what leads to connection. When I feel shame, healthy shame, all right, so, so I know it's healthy shame because of how it feels in my body. I know it's healthy shame because of what it's moving me to do because of the thoughts connected to it, right? So healthy shame is going to be like, that doesn't make you a safe person. That's not who you want to be. That, that's the voice of healthy shame. 
That's not who you want to be. That's not how you want to show up here. And I'm going to want to show up differently. I'm going to want to live out my core values. So, so let's say in my, in my relationship with my wife or with a friend or, uh, or whatever, I feel shame. <laughs> okay. Here's, here's an example. All right. I am horrible about returning messages, voicemails, text messages, emails, terrible. I can make up all kinds of excuses about the volume that I get and all of this kind of stuff. At the end of the day, I'm awful about it. And any of my friends who are listening to this are going to be like, yep, that's right. I'm glad he knows. Well, I know this about myself. And sometimes a friend will text me and I have every intention to get back to them, but I can't do it right now. My days are packed full, right? Moment, but I'll get to it tonight. Well, then by the night I'm, I'm done. I'm actually an introvert. I've expended my energy. And so now it's the next day and the next day. And then I remember, oh my gosh, I didn't text so-and-so back. And I feel shame about that. That's not the friend I want to be. I can do two things with that. I can either let the shame drive me to isolate and avoid. And now what's happening? It's going to become something more chronic, more carried. I'm reinforcing it because I'm still being that guy, that friend I don't want to be. And it has that compounding effect. Or I can go, that's not who I want to be. And I can pick up the phone and call my friend and say, hey, I'm sorry. I'm just getting back to you. I apologize. You're important to me. And I'm sure that that didn't feel like you were very important to me. What's going on? You know? And now I'm owning my stuff and I'm, and I'm, I'm letting the shame motivate me to be a certain person. It's so cool to hear you talk about what that looks like between friends, between partners, husband and wife. And I think this is a great example of, of why your practice is called Daring Ventures. Absolutely. That's it. It's in our name that we, I mean, relationships are an adventure. They are right. And so when we venture out into these relational waters, it takes courage. It absolutely takes courage to do it, to face this stuff. But the payoff is huge. It's huge for, for us, for our relationships, but for, for the world. Like, I mean, to me, these relationships are, are what make the world a better place <laughs> and a safer place. So if you want to get connected with Jake, go down to the link in the show notes. We have everything for Daring Ventures and a very exciting event coming up, the Choose Connection Summit. Yes, yes, the Choose Connection Summit. So this is the second online summit that we do. It's primarily designed for couples, though certainly, you know, singles or or even if you're in a couple, but your partner's not doing the recovery thing with you, you might get some benefit out of this. And the focus is on recovery, healing from a trauma, healing from addiction, uh, connection, um, relationships, leveraging the power of relationships for our good. The theme this year is from grief, grief to growth, and it's free. That's, that's the main thing I want to say is that um, it is 100% free. It's going to be March 25th through 27th, so three days. And each day, a whole batch of uh, interviews with experts like you, Drew, are, yeah, yeah, are going to be released. And you've got 48 hours uh, from the time it's released to view those those sessions for free. Um, 
there will be an opportunity if people want, you know, to, to buy them for lifetime access and all that they can, but for the most, we just want to offer this resource to any of you out there and you can sign up to get your free pass. Uh, well, I'll let Drew put the link down there so that we know who he sent our way. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm partnering with you in this and I'm really excited to be featured as a speaker, putting in my own video course on healing the inner child as part of the bundle. Beautiful. And I think it would be really cool if we had a group of guys who go through this together. If you loved this episode, you will love the summit. Yes. Yeah. We have, we really do have some phenomenal guests this year. Uh, we do, we do every year, but we've got uh, Barbara Steffens, who was the founder of AppSats, the Association for Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists, going to be there. Dr. Sherry Keffer is going to be a part of it. Um, just just some really phenomenal big names. Rob Weiss, who wrote Prodependence um, and Sex Addiction 101, is going to be a part of it. So, and I could go on and on. Amazing folks. Awesome. So yeah, sign up, choose connection. And Jake, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Drew. It's a pleasure. Awesome. And gentlemen, always remember that you are God's beloved son. And in you, he is well pleased. 